Welcome to Secret Sauce for Success, show number 20. Hi, everybody. You have tuned in to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we strive to find the secret ingredients that lead to success. We interview successful guests every week and learn their secret to their success. We sincerely hope you implement these habits into your life and become the best you that you can be. Enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? It's Rick Stahl, host of the Secret Sauce for Success show. Live from snowy Colorado and cold, here with my co-host, Doug Kierstein. What's going on, Doug? Hey, Rick. Just uh, trying to stay warm and uh, not lose feeling in my feet as I walk around my house here. It's crazy, man. It's cold. I haven't seen anything like it in a long time. Yep. No kidding. Got about uh, six inches of snow out here by, by my house, which we're pretty close up to the mountains. Luckily, I have two strong young teenage boys in my house here that can scoop snow for me. Yep. Well, Doug, it's been a while since we've been in the saddle for a podcast. Right. It has been. We have some ground to make up here, but I think that today's guest is going to be a pretty interesting fellow. I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Is there anything that the listeners should kind of listen for during the interview? What struck me most about this young man was his open-mindedness. The idea that he started out as an engineer and kind of moved his way up the engineering ladder to different levels of authority and very different, really, what I would expect to be very different job descriptions. He took that and applied it to other things. So he started thinking, well, I've got all these skills now. How do I move this to other parts of my life? And just hearing his story about doing that, moving into real estate, moving into other investments and other things, I think it's really great case study in how to become a successful and well-rounded person, right? Take what you know and apply it to other things and grow in those other things. And then you, pretty soon you're a guy who, or a gal who makes good money and has a lot of interests and can explore those interests because they have money and now they have time, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it's kind of a, a good recipe for, or good model for how to, to put your life on a trajectory for success. Yeah. I thought almost the same thing is, he spent more time researching his model and trying to figure out where he should be going and before he jumps in. And I thought that was a perfect amount of research before you jump. Right. So research is always good. Most people fall into the analysis paralysis. Yeah. So yeah. you got to yeah. jump. Yeah, you do. You got to get in. And it's a little scary. It really is when, when it's your money on the line, when it's your time, your livelihood, whatever that looks like, it, it's a scary thing to do, but you know, no pain, no gain, right? That's right. But you got to do your work ahead of time. No. Take risks, but don't be stupid about taking risks. You know, understand what you're getting into, understand where those risks lie, and then take steps to avoid the risks or take steps to mitigate the risks, but allow that the piece of any investment or any entrepreneurial kind of, of project, the real benefit comes from the risks that are involved right? That's where the money is. So that's where the return is. It's, it's a risk to ask a girl out on a date when you're a young man, because you could get rejected, or you could have a great date with a really cute girl. I mean, it's a great payoff, right? What's right. the risk return and put some money into a building and, and maybe get that money back. Maybe don't get it back. But, you know, I mean, it's all the same thing. Life is full of risks. You, you know, you, you take calculated risks and hopefully get a good payoff. Well, let's get to the interview with Levi Keen. Excellent. All right. Today, we have a special guest with us, Levi Keen. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I met you at a real estate meetup, correct? Yeah. I think it was the, uh, what was it, the Badass Real Estate Meetup Group. 
Yeah. And I learned a little bit about you. And I can believe you're an engineer by day and a real estate syndicator by night. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I wear a lot of hats as, as time goes on. My life has been shifting uh, more and more away from the corporate world. Don't tell my boss this. I hope they're not listening to this, but more and more away from the corporate world and more into, yeah, a variety of things. Very interested in the real estate world, been uh, trying to learn that realm, dabble in that realm, advance in that realm for the last uh, few years, other business ventures as well. Mm-hmm. So let's go back. I'm an engineer as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it's a different world, but it's all kind of the same, right? We learn math, we learn how to evaluate risk, I guess. So how did you get into first engineering? It was mostly by coincidence. I grew up in a pretty rural area and we did not have a lot of technology. Certainly engineering was not something that I ever thought about when I was growing up. But I happened to, because we were at a fairly small school, my childhood years, uh, getting plugged in and helping with a lot of things that I probably wouldn't if I grew up in a larger area. So I ended up designing the website for our school district by fluke because I happened to know HTML and nobody else did. So I wrote the website. I happened to get plugged in with a video conferencing system and was the one that ran it at our school's district. And that's that was a tool that allowed teachers from different districts to teach at our school. And that was, again, just by fluke. I was in the right place at the right time. And it got me interested in technology. So when I went to college, I thought that I was going to go into computer science. I knew how to script a little bit. I knew how to write some web services. And I thought, oh, this is the major for me. But then on getting there, I realized that if you work in software, you have to stare at a computer screen all the time. (laughs) You know, I've said that a hundred (laughs) times. I'm going to shift careers here and I'm going to move from software into electrical engineering because those people don't have to look at computer screen. <laughs> In theory, right? <laughs> yeah. So then I ended up becoming an engineer, electrical engineer and, and writing software and doing digital electronics, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the most carefully laid plans sometimes don't work. Yeah, that's funny. One of the curses of the modern age, fortunately, though, it allows a lot of advantages as well. I mean, the power of what you can do with just Excel or MATLAB, if you've got a tool like that, it's incredible. The amount of computations that you can do, the business optimization, it's just, just amazing. Yep. Yeah, I've always been a fan of programming and that I used to tinker when I was a kid with that stuff. I actually have a degree in information technology, so I had... Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that kind of background learned HTML as well mm-hmm. and built some databases like relational databases using uh, SQL. Yep. Right? But I'm with you. I hate computers. And the, the older I get, the more I hate them. Yeah, it's always a love-hate relationship. Now, how many years in the engineering were you when you started doing real estate? Yeah. So let's see. I, I've been working in industry as an engineer for 12 years now. Okay. And I've worked in a, a variety of spheres, everything from embedded systems development to power grid automation to automation for train yards. And now mostly what I do is I manage people, I manage projects, I manage budgets, plan business strategy. The real estate interest peaked, I'd say, probably about five years ago. I'd been working for a number of years in industry at that point. I was wondering what the next step was. I started as a design engineer. And I kind of slowly progressed through different areas of engineering, learned some different domains. I became a team lead. Then I became a people manager. Then I became a director. 
And during this process, you know, a lot of things were changed. I was, I started out doing very technical engineering and then it was more architectural engineering and then it was more team engineering and then it was more business engineering, you know, planning out the strategy for the business. And this was kind of just the next step in the progression. It's like, okay, well, I understand how a corporate business works at this point. I wonder what that looks like if I took that same skill set and tried to apply it in an entirely different field, real estate. So why real estate? I mean, what piqued your interest there? Yeah, I think one of the things is I, I started reading a little bit about different money-making mechanisms. Have you ever read Kiyosaki's book, The, the Cash Flow Quadrant? I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot of people talk about it. Yeah, it's a popular one, but it basically steps through the W-2 income and what the tax liability is for that, business income, what the tax liabilities that for that, passive investing in the market, what that looks like, and then real estate. And there's there's a lot of advantages on the real estate side. There's a lot of advantages on the starting up your own business, investing passively in the market. All three of those quadrants give you considerably better advantages than just working a job and collecting a paycheck through your W-2 is, is most, there are risks involved with it, but the, the opportunities are massive in reducing your tax burden, which depending on where you're at in the income brackets, it can be easily 20%, 30% plus of your income. Richard Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad, right? He kind of that's right. Uh, set a lot of people free, right? You know, just opening their minds up. Yeah, yeah, and he definitely did for me. I, I think I didn't know I was going to go into real estate when I started getting interested in real estate. At that point, I was dabbling. I was curious what some different mechanisms for making money are, reducing expenses were, and. Uh, I kind of fell into it. I had met a few people who were in real estate, started talking about real estate. I didn't know anything about real estate. And quite frankly, I'm not an expert in real estate. I know some things about real estate. But what I come to understand and probably the, the skill that I offer is I understand how the business model works, right? I understand like what the whole financial strategy looks like and why it's valuable to invest in real estate. Okay. So you piqued your interest and then what? You kind of... Searching it out, met some friends. Then yeah, yeah. So at that point, I started reading some books about real estate. I initially got pretty interested in Brandon Turner's Bigger Pockets podcast. He does a good job with that and has written several books. I read his Burr Strategy books. I read several of his books on just how to start purchasing small properties, maybe a single family home and renting it out or rehabbing it, reselling it, purchasing maybe a duplex and getting getting some of the tax advantages of living in one unit while renting out the other. There's a, a number of books that I read around that, and that was all very intriguing. And I'd say probably my first formulated plan was to begin purchasing somewhere between a duplex, triplex, and quadplex, and living in one of the units, renting out the other units, taking one of the units out of rent, probably the one I was living in, and just doing some rehab on it myself. And then as tenants move out, I would just move units, go through the whole building, and then eventually sell the whole complex. And because I had been living in the unit, there's a bunch of tax gains around that. So that was kind of the initial game plan. Okay. Did that? Did you execute that plan? Not at all. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. What ended up happening is I penciled it all out. I looked at the amount of work that it would be. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way to do this with less time investment because I, I'm pretty handy. I grew up doing a lot of mechanical stuff, construction stuff, and thinking about 
the amount of time that I would have to invest in doing the rehab on these units, maintaining the units, running all the logistics, getting renters, all of that, it's a massive investment. And it basically, I mean, my goal was to move away from the corporate realm so I didn't have to work a nine to five job anymore. But the more I thought about this strategy, it looked like I was working a nine to five job again, or maybe a a 6 a.m. to midnight job. Right, right. It's supposedly passive income, right? But it's really not passive. Yeah, there's a lot of work involved. There's ways that you can do turns key solutions where somebody else does a lot of the work for you. Uh, You just, you delegate it, but then you you take a a smaller profit. But if you want to get pretty good returns, you're spending a lot of time, a lot of time doing the work and you don't have the returns that you could get if you had economy of scale. And working in the corporate world, we're, we're all about economy of scale. We've got specialized resources who know a particular domain very well. They don't know a ton of domains, but they know their little niche domain. And because of that, you, you end up with this economy of scale. You can replicate those resources. They're much more efficient than they would be if you had a versatile person who could do just a bunch of different things. So I got to thinking about the economy of scale and uh, connected with some folks who were already working in the larger multifamily space. And that's when the light bulb flashed on and I realized, oh, okay, I was generally going the direction I wanted to, but I just didn't have the exact target right. Instead of small multifamily housing, what I really wanted to look at was larger multi, larger 100 plus multifamily units. Just go right to the top, man. Right to the top. <laughs> Ambitious for sure. <laughs> Oh, yeah. did you, you own then just the home that you live in now, or do you have other properties as well? Yeah. So actually, I've been moving around a bit in the last year, and I'll be moving here again in, a, in another month to another area of Denver. But I've been renting, and I, I found it in the market here, it's better, better for me to keep my money in investments where I can make a, a better return off of them than to purchase a house where... My biggest cost is the opportunity cost of not being in investments. Right. So what kind of investments do you like? Are you a, a stock market guy? Are you a, an options guy? I mean, what do you, what uh, kinds of things do you, do you look at as investment? Yeah, it, a lot of stuff. I definitely believe in the diversity model to an extent. I think it's good to have money in a, in a bunch of different places. You never know when you're going to need money. Life changes very quickly. There's all kinds of big events that can happen. It's good if you've got money in assets where the one is down, you know, the other one is probably going to be up and it's dead. I'll invest in the stock market. That's where I started. I invested in the market for a number of years. I tried my hand at day trading. So I have I. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, man. That's a, that's a tough thing to try to move a target that's really hard to hit. Yeah. I'll just tell you a quick story about that. So I started investing in individual stocks and I would research the companies. I read the the quintessential books on, on how to invest Benjamin Graham's books. Intelligent investor. Intelligent investor. Exactly. Just soaked all that stuff up. And I tracked each of my transactions very carefully, calculated my, what my effective annual return would be. And I was getting really good returns. And I was patting myself on the back thinking, great job, Levi, you're good at this. This could be your livelihood. You know, I was making 25%-ish returns and feeling very good about it. Yeah. And then I compared it to the market. And the market uh, at the same time was returning the high 20s or low 30s. 
Oh. And I was actually losing to the market, even though I thought that I was beating the market, just because at that time I happened to be investing in, in a bull market. And the market's doing good. It's easy to be a winner in the bull markets, but it's also very easy to be a loser in <laughs> the bear market, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's tough to invest in the market. I think investing in the market is good. It's easy to extract your money from the market. If you're investing in mutual funds, index funds, it's pretty easy to pull your money out. Individual stocks, it can be, but there's a lot more volatility. So it's harder to pull your money out when you need it, right? right? But I'm definitely a, a big fan of the, the index investing model where you distribute your money widely across the market and you don't try to beat the market, but rather you try simply to keep up with it. I'm slowly trying to get there. I've been trying the stock market thing for a while. And yeah, again, like you, I'm not doing as well as I should. So yeah, at this point, I've convinced myself that uh, trying to beat the market is not something that I will ever be successful with doing. There's enough smart people on Wall Street with way more resources than I have, way more time than I have, way better computers than I have to, to run simulation models. I'm not going to beat them. Yeah. And if you subscribe at all to Mr. John Bogle's and cult following the Bogleheads advice on stock investing, they will tell you that the number of people that successfully beat the market consistently is exactly the number that you would expect by random chance. Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. Here at Stahl Realty, you are number one. I'm a realtor with HomeSmart, and my job is to make sure you are satisfied. Here is what one satisfied client of Stahl Realty had to say. Rick Stahl was an awesome asset in helping our family find a home that checks all our boxes. He is patient and committed. I would recommend calling upon his services. One of my favorite mottos is making milestones memorable. Buying or selling a house can be overwhelming, but with my guidance and expertise, I can make this process as smooth as possible. I can be reached via email at stahlrealty at gmail.com or text call me at 720-429-3303. I look forward to hearing from you. And now back to our show. All right. So you looked at the stock market and you're, again, you're back in real estate and you wanted to shoot right to the top. So yep. what did you do next? Yeah. So about that time, I connected with somebody who was already into the real estate syndicate game. And for any of the listeners who don't know what real estate syndicates are, it's basically like you're trying to buy a property, but you don't have enough money or you don't have quite the right skills yourself. So you get a business partner. In its essence, that's what a real estate syndicate is. You're investing in real estate. It could be a single house. It could be a duplex. It could be 500 unit complex. And you've got one or more business partners. Now, the way that these are typically structured is the you bring exactly the number of people into the into each of the deals that you need based upon the skill sets that they have or the resources that they have. So let's say, for instance, you want to purchase a 100-unit apartment complex. Now, the reason you might want to do that is because lots of people rent. We expect more people to rent in the future, so it seems like a good investment. People are going to yeah continue to invest. It's, it's a pretty stable cash flow, but it's it's big. And that's why most people don't invest in it. Right. It's risky, right? It, it feels risky, right? But you don't particularly see a lot of these large apartment complexes go bankrupt, or at least not ones that are well run. I, I suppose some of them do, and maybe those are the ones that I'm buying. But the biggest challenge is that it just feels impossible to purchase something like that. 
by yourself. And it probably is for most people. So if you can pull your resources, pull your talents, pull your, your knowledge base and get all the right people in the room, collectively, it's pretty easy to purchase a hundred unit complex. You need somebody who understands accounting. You need somebody who knows how to negotiate with the brokers. You need somebody who knows how to run a hundred unit apartment complex. You need somebody who has money and can put the money forward to get a loan on the property. You need somebody who knows how to get a loan. If you're doing renovations on the property, you need somebody who knows how to do construction management. So there's all these different skills that uh, most of which are skills that you would use in a smaller apartment building and that you might do yourself. I know you've got some properties, Rick, where, where you're doing, where you're renting them out. Correct. But it's a small scale though. It's not this big league stuff. Yeah, but there's plenty of people that have these skills. So if you can connect with them and you can form a, a group, it's typically done as an LLC. So you form a company and you draft up the bylaws such that there's a profit sharing agreement between you based on the skills, the resources, the knowledge that you're bringing to the table. Then collectively, each person just does the thing that they already know how to do. And they do that thing well because they're skilled at it already. And the whole business flourishes. So you knew some people that we're doing this already. Did they mentor you? How did you start taking that first step? I mean, this, you're like me, I'm just taking little baby steps, right? You, this sounds like a big step and you better know what you're doing if you're asking the people for their money. Right. Right. So how did you start? I mean, what's the first step then you did to actually start doing it? Yeah. Well, I, the first step was, uh, was a big one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing for me was vetting one of the deals myself. Now I got some amount of knowledge in real estate to be able to vet these deals, but I can't tell you if this is the appropriate water fixture to put in, or if this is the appropriate model for raising the rents, or if this is the appropriate legal process for removing a tenant. I don't have those technical knowledge details, so I'm relying upon other people. But what I did is I looked at somebody who was already doing this work, exactly a mentorship model like you're talking about. And it was a person who was already successful, who had already purchased a number of properties in conjunction with other people. And he showed me what the model looked like. He showed me what the returns looked like on these past properties and convinced me through evidence that this is a model that not only can work, but that does work and will continue to work. So I looked at that, went through the numbers myself, did as much due diligence as I had the ability to, and then I started investing as a passive investor. Okay. So, that's that's so, a good first step. Yeah. So my contribution was not adding knowledge. It was, it was adding a resource, knowledge, talent, resource. I was just adding a resource. In order to make these deals work, you can have all the talent and knowledge you want, but you still need money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You invested passively and then you saw that the returns were good. Yeah, I started investing in my first deal about four years ago, and it was a little bit nerve wracking. I'll, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I don't think I would have done it. I, I'm fairly open to risk, but I don't think I would have jumped into an industry that I didn't know a ton about at the time without having a lot of trust in the person who was mentoring me. So having that initial relationship was absolutely critical. And it, it's a guy who, who I know very well. We've been friends for a long time. I know his family well. And 
It was something that he was already invested in. He had already a demonstrated history of returns. And so I said, okay, I'm willing to make the plunge based on his recommendation. So I jumped in and a few years later, I've now been tracking all those passive returns and uh, seeing them match up or exceed the performers that were initially issued. So, so that's positive and it encourages me to continue with this model. Right. You proved you invested, you proved it, it works. Now you're like, all right, now I want to be the guy in the chair. Yeah, and it kind of just continuing with that trajectory that I had started earlier, engineer to technical lead to people manager to director of programs to launching into a whole different industry. The next step for me is basically trying to become a an active member in these real estate syndicates. Now, I have some level of knowledge in real estate, but I'm not technical in real estate. I understand the finances. I understand the model because I understand the finances and the model. It's it's easy for me to raise money because I'm convinced that this is a good way to make money. And have you started uh, chairing or what do you call it? Being the main man syndicator yet? Have you pulled down any deals? Yeah. So we are, we're working on a, a deal now and I would be general partner on that. So the way that it typically works is you enter as a passive investor as a limited partner in a business. So you don't have decision-making authority because you don't know anything. Right, right. And as you advance in, in your skill set, as you begin to learn things about the business, then you can become a general partner on these deals. Okay. And at that point, you part of the team who's making decisions. So that's what I'm doing now. Uh, my role as a general partner would be to raise money primarily. And I'm not sure how far I want to take it in learning the other skill set. If I learn to analyze the deals better, then I'm going to have to analyze deals. And that's, that's a lot of work. Right. right. <laughs> it's very interesting to understand how those parts of the business work. And as an engineer, I want to understand all of it. But there's also the time consideration. And part of the reason that I'm interested in real estate is to generate money passively so I can work on the things that I'm that I'm particularly interested in. Okay. So it's not really you deciding one day you're going to jump right to the top and collect money and form your own team. You're kind of sliding into another person's team and working up through the rank. Bingo. Yep. Yep. That doesn't sound so scary. Yeah. No, it's scary in that you're investing in something that most people don't invest. That's the scary part. And if you just go ask Joe Schmo on the street, he's probably going to say, that's a very risky investment. But the thing about risk is that it's only risky if you don't understand the domain or you don't have reasonable confidence in the domain. But real estate, especially in the rental realm, and especially when you've got economy of scale working to your advantage, it's not really very volatile. There is some volatility in the buying and selling because you don't know what the market's going to be doing as far as valuation at that time goes. But the cash on cash returns for a lot of these properties are very consistent and they're pretty strong return. It's not uncommon for a large complex, 100 to 250 units to run at 9 to 13% cash on cash return. Which 9% might fail to the market, depending on what the market's doing. Market on average over any 10-year period returns about 10%. Of course, there are tax advantages that may make even a 9% actually beat a 10% return on the market. Uh, but that aside, 13% return, cash on cash return is, is quite good. And that's just the base level return from the property. So that's if your whole business model around 
trying to reduce expenses fails and you're not able to create a more optimized way of managing the properties, uh, you're not able to force appreciation through rehabbing the units, any of that stuff, or even gain appreciation on the property as a whole when you sell it. So that's this basic cash on cash return. Once now, you start weighing those other factors, the, the returns can increase pretty dramatically. And this team that you slid into or partnered with, or however you want to say it, is it a local Denver team or is it somewhere else? Yeah. So the thing about syndications is that they tend to, because you have a bunch of people usually joining the syndications to offer a lot of different skill sets, they tend to have people coming from all over. So it doesn't tend to matter quite as much where the property actually is at. So I'm not sure even what I would call the origin of any of the syndications that I've been a part of, other than where the physical property is at, which generally has, on the properties I've invested in, has been in the South. Memphis, Tennessee, for instance, it's an up and coming area. A lot of people are moving to that area. There's a lot of good industries there. They tend to be either thriving or growing uh, in some other way. There's tax incentives there right now in several areas that are put out by the, the city of Memphis and or the state that provide various deductions around the capital gains. So if you force appreciation on a property, you get to take some deductions there. A lot of the stars have aligned to make it more economical to purchase properties in Tennessee and North Carolina and Texas and Arkansas, a lot of these states. But, you know, if you found the right business, it wouldn't necessarily matter what it was. And because I'm either doing fundraising or investing passively, it also doesn't matter where I'm at. Right. So fundraising, right? You have a day job, right? You're off solving the world's problems. Where, how do you find time to fundraise? You know, the funny thing is this is a job that requires no work. I'm just doing all of the things that I normally do for fun and money just comes in. So I'm on a podcast with you guys because I was at a real estate meetup that I wanted to be at. And, uh, you know, sometimes you form just random connections through these sort of pop-ups, but I would be at them anyway because I find it fun. You form an interesting network with people. You have no idea where these networks are going to take you in the future. That's one way. Another way is I believe in these investments, right? So I'm investing my own money. Clearly, I believe it's a, a successful strategy. So why wouldn't I want to share that with my friends, with my family? So I'll talk about real estate with them because I'm interested in real estate and they'll get curious and start asking me questions and say, well, you know, we just sold a rental property. I've got $200,000. Do you have a place that I can put that? And I'll say, yeah, sure. You know, we've got a deal coming up in North Carolina here in a couple of months. We could drop that money right in. I was going to ask if the, the uh, core people in a lot of these syndicates are the same for you, or if you're jumping around and there's a lot of different people involved. I know there's a lot of people involved, so there's going to be some, some uh, certainly some mix mixing there, but are the core people generally the same? Yeah, it actually varies quite widely. I'd say the only member that has been consistent for me between the different businesses we've formed, and at this point, we've formed five businesses, has just been one person. That was my initial connection, my friends who I work with. And then he had the connections to some of these other folks in terms of the, the yeah. professionals who come in with their knowledge base. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is it, it depends greatly on what you're investing in and where it's at. If you're investing in Texas, you're going to probably want a property manager from Texas to join the team. You're going to want a construction manager from Texas to join the team. You're going to want a lawyer who understands Texas law to join the team. You know, there, there's a number of factors like that. Some of the other functions, like maybe you just need somebody with a high net worth to sign a loan. 
that person could be a consistent team member if they happen to be. But maybe they've got too high a debt to income ratio and they're not available for the next deal for whatever reason. So then you got to find somebody else. So the teams evolve a lot. It, it really just depends on what the specific need is, where it's at, and who, who's available at the time. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so the networking is really <clears throat> just keeping open to these deals all the time. And then as soon as one comes up to see what's available, see who's available, see what resources are available. And then if all the stars align, then you've got yourself a deal. So do you have like an email list that you, how do people know if a deal's coming? Yeah, it's informal. It's people reaching out to people. Yep. Do you have a a team of realtors then who are out there kind of scouring and and looking for these deals? Or does this come from kind of those inside relationships? It's a mix. Some of it is open market. I'd say probably more of the deals are off market. And that happens because once you've developed a history with a broker, with a real estate agent, they tend to have a network already in place, other people they've bought and sold with. And so they can recommend offerings to you. So I'd say that's where a lot of them come from. And what is like a minimum offering? Yeah. So that's actually primarily governed by the federal law around how many people can purchase into various properties or various investments and how big the deal is. Maybe you need a a million dollars in, in capital raise. There's a limit to how many people could invest in that who are not accredited investors. You can have as many accredited investors, which means net worth over a million or full-time real estate, but there's a limit to how many non-accredited investors. So you basically need to set the minimum buy-in to each of these deals to keep the number of people required to fund the deal from exceeding the federal thresholds. Right. The little dance that has to be done there with the uh, little manipulating of the numbers that must be done there in order to stay within the rules. Yeah. But typical numbers, just to give you a feel, I'd say they usually land somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000. Okay. And what kind of returns? You were mentioning 10%, 12%. Yeah. So that's more of the cash on cash return. But then we're also doing things like forcing appreciation of the property. So let's say that the business operates at 7% cash on cash return when we buy it. There might be a few things we can do, like putting in a better manager. Maybe if the rents are below market averages, then we could raise the rents a little bit to get them up to market averages. If you've got some delinquent payments, maybe you can evict those tenants and, and get better quality tenants in. So you can do a few things to bring up the cash flow to the, the 9 to 13% return that might be more typical. But outside of those things, you can also go through and you can do more substantive changes. Like let's say the property is paying all the water bill. You could swap out all the water fixtures in the building to make them more water efficient. Pretty significant return on your investment there, as it turns out. You can rehab the units. We'll often buy into properties that are in the, maybe the B minus sphere and bring them up into the B sphere or the B plus sphere. So you might have that dingy 70s shade carpet. <laughs> well, I guess most of that is pulled out already at this point, but <laughs> at least like the 80s, 90s taupe facade, you can make some improvements there, make it a higher quality apartment, put in nicer fixtures, get rid of the old gross carpet and put in some wood floors, just bring up the class of the apartments. By forcing the appreciation up, you can generate additional overall return. Typical returns It's going to vary depending on the property where you're at. Right now, the returns are actually a little bit better because of the inflation rates. Those only benefit you if you're taking out a loan. But I'd say typical is probably 16 plus percent, maybe 16 into the low 20s, depending on where you're at. 
I've got oh. some properties that are hitting in the 17 range. I've got some properties that are hitting in the low 20s right now. Just depends on when you got in, how your effect, how the supply chain is affected, how the labor shortages are affecting things, how the inflation is helping you. You know, there, there's a lot of factors that affect the overall performance, but you're basically starting with that cash on cash return somewhere around nine to thirteen percent, and then you're adding on whatever percent you're getting from the forced depreciation. And what is your exit strategy from an investment? Yeah, so most of these are buy and hold for five, six, seven years. You you want to keep the property long enough that you have time to go through and rehab all the units. It takes quite a bit of time if you've got 200, 300 units in your complex. Uh, so, you, so you've at least got to get through that portion of it. But sometimes it just doesn't make sense to sell the property right away. Maybe the market's in a bit of a downturn. So you hold it for a few extra years. The way that the business is typically set up is there's it's open-ended as to when exactly the business will terminate and sell. But the goal would be somewhere usually around five, six, seven years. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to wait five, six, seven years before you get any money back. If you purchase a, a house for yourself and you are planning to improve it, live in it, and then sell it, you have to wait until you sell the house to get all your return back. Right. If you are purchasing maybe a duplex or something and, and renting out the units, you can start getting a cash flow because you've got people. And it's the same thing with a larger complex. If you've got 200 units, you cash flow. Yeah, you're paying money into the rehabilitation of the facilities, but you're also generating a cash flow as you go. So there's typically maybe 50% of the money is returned to you by year two, and then another 50% by year three or four, and then another 100% by say year five or six. And if you added all those up, you end up with around 200% return, which comes out to somewhere around 17% return over a five-year period. Well, how did they pay you in that? So, so you actually get a K-1, a real estate K-1. So it looks like you're investing in an LLC. You're a member of an LLC. You own a piece of that business. The business just happens to have purchased real estate. So that's what reflects on the K-1. So it does make your taxes a little bit more complicated. I can still do my taxes by myself, but... You know, depending on how complex your tax situation is, you may need to take it into a CPA who can advise you. The dividends themselves, yeah, they would come out typically via wire transfer. Yeah. And it depends on the syndicate. You can set it up however you want. I mean, you could have no distributions until the end of the project if that's how you wanted to set it up. But most people like getting at least a little bit of cash flow to give them a warm and fuzzy <laughs> during the interim period. And so if they need the money for something, some of it's back and they can always choose to reinvest it if they want to. We typically do distributions on a quarterly basis. Yeah, that's interesting. I was wondering whether you kept that or it was a pretty liquid type of investment or uh, if there was some sort of dividend that was paid out. So you answered my question before I could even ask it. Yeah. I mean, compared to the stock market, it's not liquid. You can't extract your money from the deal. You can't sell your shares to somebody else usually. Maybe, depending on how the business is structured, you, it might be allowed. But I mean, typically, you're, you need to be able to put that money away. This is this is a longer term investment. It's not a get rich quick scheme. It's put money away and over the long run, you'll do well. And is, for taxes, is it just taxes your regular income or short term capital gains? It's real estate capital gains. It's not taxed at the regular income rates. There's I'm not going to provide any tax advice here, but there, there's a lot of opportunities to make your gain non-taxable. There are ways that you can defer those taxes essentially indefinitely. You can do, what is it, the 1031 exchange 
where you sell a property and the so long as you pick a new property that you're going to purchase into within a six month period of selling or three months, whatever it is, then you can defer the taxes through that mechanism continuously. Check me on what the number, I think it's 1031 exchange. Yeah. But so this is what confuses me. I mean, like if Doug and I go get a property, we could, you know, fix and flip it, 1031 it, right? But we're controlling that 1031. But in this giant corporation, would it be the whole corporation 1031-ing it to another property? I mean, it's just a bigger scale, right? Yeah. So you actually, you own a piece of this business and you can do, and the business is real estate. It just happens that, yeah, you maybe only own a door of one unit and the windows of another and the floor of another, but you do own those and they are real estate. So you can 1031 from a house to a piece of a multifamily unit and then back to a larger house and just continue down the line. So you consider that if you own just the floors or the windows, is that like a sector fund of some kind or or what? (laughs) Sorry, a little uh, investment humor there. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. So it would have to be, if you had a 1031 exchange situation, you'd have to really be exchanging the entirety of the building unless you could sell shares of that and potentially trade those for other shares. But then you're outside of the, of the real estate piece there. So that wouldn't even apply. Right. But you actually, because you're purchasing as an individual, it's not like you're splitting a house because you don't own the whole house. You own a piece of the house, but from the IRS's perspective, that's all the house that there is. They don't care that it's a piece, just in the same way that they wouldn't care if the condo that you purchased was part of a massive condo building. Right. If you're in the property like that and you uh, you own as part of a limited liability corporation, right, it's an LLC or general partnership, right, that you're a part of, the IRS doesn't see that as real estate. It sees it as a business that happens to own real estate. And the, the treatment of the real estate is very different than the treatment of the business. So right. as an owner of the business, you look at that as a business transaction. And then the way the business makes money is through real estate and taxes right. applied differently and the laws applied differently to each one. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. And that, I think, is where really the fun is, is then the, some of those details and putting some of that together and the nuance of how to, to manipulate the tax code and manipulate all of these things such that you can maximize those returns. Playing within the rules, of course, but tax yeah. evasion is a, a, a felony, but tax avoidance is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? So you know, that's yeah. fun and interesting part. Yeah, and there's a reason that the tax code is quite long. There it's it's just a massive book full of incentives to get you to do different things with your money. Right. You know, I, I, a lot of these things make sense. Some of them don't make any sense, but you go back to the Memphis example. The reason that Memphis has a complicated tax structure, these incentive zones, as they call them, is because they're trying to draw investment into their area. They want that. The industry, the, the community wants to have some new housing because there's not enough there, whatever their reason is. And so taking advantage of these tax opportunities really is a win-win for everybody. It's a win for the community that you're investing in. Hopefully all the investments that we're investing in, we're considering carefully and only investing in things that like we actually think are going to add value to the community. Otherwise, not really sure it's worth the money you got weighing on you. But then the incentive for you to do that, yeah, is that you're able to reduce your tax burden pretty significantly in a lot of cases. I know you say you buy them in different, maybe a B minus and move it into the B or B plus kind of rating. 
But do you do anything like buy old hotels and that kind of thing and then convert those into apartment buildings? Do you do anything like that? Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't. I have dabbled in some other areas. The multifamily has really just been straight apartment complexes. They do come in a variety of forms. Some of them are townhomes. Some of them are many rooms per unit. Some of them are just, just one unit. Some of them are studios. So there's some variety there, but it's all just been places that are already an apartment complex. It reduces the complexity and the team that I typically work with, that's the skill set that they've got. I don't see any reason not to look to some of these other areas. And I'm sure there's a, there probably are tons of syndications offering opportunities in the conversions and maybe it's maybe it's not uh, residential, maybe it's commercial properties and they're leasing out office space to businesses. You know, The same model would apply to any of these. This just happens to be the one that I'm more familiar with. Do you have any deals right now that Doug and I can invest in? <laughs> we'll have something coming up here in, in a couple months. So yeah, if you're interested, just hit me up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd say there's probably a few deals across my table every every year. It's not a large number because they're complicated deals and you don't get in on that many of them. It also is difficult to raise a lot of money for these things, looking at it from my standpoint. And my buddy who's doing more of the deal analysis, you know, it takes a lot of time. You, you look at maybe a thousand different listings and you see a hundred that are within the realm of possibility. On closer scrutiny, you see that only 10 are even feasible. You make 10 offers and maybe one of them comes through. It narrows down pretty quick. There's a fair amount of work associated with it. So yeah, it's usually a few months between deals. Right. And you know, when we buy a property, you know, we already have, you know, the loans available to buy it, right? And in your case, you're putting out all these offers and you have to have the money, right? I mean, do you already have the money people behind you and you're just keep looking until you hit one? Yeah. And this is why I think it's important to get in with a team that's seasoned already, that already has some expertise. You've already got two or three people that you can call that are able to put up the money for the loan. You've got two or three people who already have a connection with the loan manager at a bank who they've worked with in the past and who can expedite a loan if you need to get it. So you have to have all those building blocks in place. So it's difficult to get in if you're just trying to do it yourself. If you're just trying to go out with your your 10 buddies and form one of these, that would be very hard. I would say if you're interested in syndication, it's much better to find somebody who's already in syndication and get involved there. And again, the best way to start that process is just by investing passively. You learn how the deals are structured. You learn who the players are in the deals. And at that point, once you've got a good network in place, then if you want to take that next step, and most people won't because actively investing in these is a lot of work. It's a job. But, but if you wanted to at that point, then you'd already have that connection base. So your main job is to raise money. Yep. And have you been doing a good job at it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It depends on, depends on what your perspective is. You know? <laughs> I mean, it, it's easier to raise money initially. I mean, this year I raised probably most of a million dollars. So, you know, I can do that for some amount of time because I've got a network in place. But at some point you start tapping out your network, <laughs> your your friends, your family, your coworkers. They've only got so much liquid money sitting around until until it's all invested in the into the, the syndication or whatever else they're investing in if they're diversifying. And then you've got to look at other ways to raising money. And that's where it gets really hard. So where do you go next? Do you need to set up a social media account, start attracting people? Well, you can't really do, you, you might be able to but the thing is, there's a bunch of rules around how you raise money for investments. You can't just go out and 
ask random people on the street for money. You have to actually know them. So unlike with some of the, with Vanguard, where they don't have to have any personal relationship with you, when you're investing in a deal like this, there are some some federal rules around actually knowing the person ahead of time. So the real estate meetups are a good way to meet people. Yes. You could connect with somebody there organically. You build a relationship with them. You build that trust relationship. And then you might be able to start investing together. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why you don't see a ton of these syndications just advertised on Facebook or on, you know, wherever you're, you're at online. There are ways where you can advertise these sort of things, but because these are kind of an organic, smaller LLC, the, the way that it's structured is typically you do need to have that personal relationship. So what next? Are you just going to keep growing uh, your skill set here and raising money? And are you going to leave your engineering job soon? I mean, what kind of, what's your long-term plan here? I'm doing a few things. I told you earlier, I'm kind of drifting away from the corporate world. One of the things I'm doing this year is launching a gym. Uh, (laughs) So it's kind of a new venture. And this falls into the category of trying to develop my skill set in some different areas. So I found a business partner who knows the the fitness realm and I know the business model realm. So we will complement one another. He will develop the core curriculum. It's going to be a unique offering around strength training and martial arts kind of mixed together in a class type of structure. So not a gym you just drop into anytime, but a gym that you go for for specific training. We'll be launching that this year. Uh, we'll see how much time that takes. Uh, it will possibly require me to scale back the corporate job to some degree. Launching into the, the real estate a little bit more aggressively this year. I've been passively investing for a number of years, raising money more recently. And I'll continue to do that and see where that takes me. But uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what the future is going to hold. I think I'm just going to kind of blindly dive in, see what sticks. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. <laughs> so this is the Secret Sauce for Success podcast. So what do you think have been your secrets, if you'd name three or four or 10 different things, whatever, that you feel like are kind of the, at the core of your success? What would those be? I think one of the things is I take a lot of time for introspection. Every day I sit down and I look back at the day. I look at the things that went well. I look at the things that didn't go well. Consider each of those things and and see if there's areas that I can improve in. See if there's areas that I'm doing awesome and maybe I need to refocus my life in those areas a little bit more prioritized way. I'll look at significant things that are happening in my life. Maybe I'm with this gym, you know, launching a new business venture. Is this something that I actually want in my life? Do I want to be a person who's beholden to a brick and mortar business and all of the headaches and toilet repairs at midnight come with a business like that? Or do I not want? So I think taking time just for introspection daily has been probably one of the most significant and useful things in my life in general that has affected my personal life in all the ways, my business life, and just given me a lot of clarity around where my trajectory is taking me and whether it's the trajectory that I want to take. Another thing that's helped me a lot is I like to read and I'll consume a lot of knowledge from different areas. So I read books on philosophy. I read books on business. I read books on finance. I read books that are purely for pleasure, (laughs) but I've pulled out a lot of really interesting nuggets of information from places I wasn't necessarily expecting them that have just totally reshaped the way that I think about money and that I think about my life strategy. So what are your favorite books then? 
that it's it's a hard question. I knew you were going to ask it, but it's still a hard question to answer. I mean, I'd have to go back to the Purple Book. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki's books are are fantastic. Rich Dad Poor Dad is is Purple Book for people who don't get the reference. And you know, that was one of the first books that I read, getting me on the journey to thinking about money differently. In it, he just uses some very basic examples about a kid growing up with two fathers. I think one was a friend's dad and one was his own. And one of them basically said. You know, if you can't afford the thing, you can't do the thing. So be financially responsible. And that was the poor dad. And the rich dad basically said, if you can't afford the thing, figure out how you can afford the thing if you want the thing. And it just changes the way that you think. So that book was really pivotal to me in just reshaping my thinking about, well, yeah, I guess if I wanted to be a millionaire or a billionaire, I could be, but am I willing to go to the lengths that it would take? And Sometimes the answer might be yes, and sometimes it might be no, depending on what exactly the question is. His book, Cashflow Quadrant, which I mentioned earlier, is also very good. I found that very helpful in just understanding the, the whole tax incentive structure. There's several books in his series that are, that are very good. Wheelwright, I, I forget, maybe Thomas Wheelwright, maybe. He talks about the, the tax side, how to reduce your tax burden. Very insightful. There's, there's a lot of incentive structures out there. And if you can take find a business model that takes advantage of them, it's definitely very helpful. Outside of the general finance books, uh, a book that I would recommend to anybody who has money in the market is any of the, I think there's three books written now, but it's um, by a group, a cult following of John Bogle called the Bogleheads. They've got the Bogleheads Guide to Investing, the Bogleheads Guide to Retirement Planning, I think. I believe they've got another one on mutual funds specifically, but that group is really good. And they've also got a blog that's, that's worth looking into. They look at the math around investing in the market and what the strategies are to not necessarily get the best possible returns, but to get the best possible returns on average over time over the right. line. Not how do you beat the market, but how do you not lose to the market? How do you get the best overall return with a relatively high level of risk aversion? Yeah. And then I'll just mention one other group of books. Bigger Pockets has a lot of fantastic resources out there just around understanding some of the nuts and bolts. Most of those books are not looking at syndication per se, which is definitely an interest of mine, but they do look at a lot of the underlying fundamentals of how the business works. And you just basically take that and scale it. So his book on buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, the burst strategy, that one is very good. And they, they've got another number of others through bigger pockets that are good. Yeah, totally agree. Hey, that's the advantage of having um, good passive investment streams. You don't have to run the podcast to make money if you don't want to. You don't have to work the day job if you don't want to. You, you have the flexibility to, to live the kind of life that you want. And hopefully it's not a lazy life. Hopefully it's still a productive life where you're doing a lot of things, but you get to pick what those things are. Maybe it's you want to go work at the local nonprofit soup kitchen and spend all of your time there. Okay, well, you got a passive income stream. Do it. <laughs> you don't have to go work at the corporate job all day. Yep. Do you have any, uh, just one more thing before we go, talking about books and things like that. Do you have other podcasts that you like as well? Anybody out there who is, let me ask you two questions here kind of related. First of all, the podcast question, and then still staying in, in reading material. You say you like to read a lot of different kinds of things and you pull different nuggets and that out of different genres and that kind of thing. Is there anything that stuck out to you 
that you've read, something that kind of impacted your financial thinking or your way you think about money that comes from something that's completely different somewhere that's a, a book on philosophy or a favorite uh, kind of social commentary or something that you've read in the past? You know, maybe I can answer both your questions in one. I've been listening to a podcast recently called The New Polity, New Polity Podcast. It's out of, I think, somewhere in Ohio. And it's it looks at the philosophy of money. It's a couple of Catholic guys who are talking about what social responsibility around money looks like. And they have they have very different views than I do on probably 50% of the things that they talk about. But it's been also very interesting because they, they bring up a lot of points around money and what it looks like to, to have wealth, to invest in the community. They're looking at it really from kind of a holistic person standpoint. What does it mean to be a good person? Who cares if you build up a real estate empire? Who cares if you have a cash flow and don't have to work? You know, maybe there's some value in suffering through the the day-to-day toil and all of these things. So it's really interesting. They do look at a lot of different topics on there. They get into politics and religion and various other things as well. But they had a, a, a whole year where they went through just looking around issues related to money, investing, and that sort of thing. And it's definitely worth listening to if you haven't studied the philosophy of, I will change some of my practices and I will reject a lot of their ideas, but at least it gives some food to thought. And what is the name of it? How do you spell it? Yeah, it's called the New Polity. Polity is P-O-L-I-T-Y. Very good. And what do you do for fun when you're not raising money and starting a gym and you know going on podcasts and, and working as an engineer? Yeah, so I'm a bit of a generalist. I like to do a lot of things, hence also the, the lot of different business types. But I love the outdoors. I love traveling. As soon as I graduated from college, I spent several months just vagabonding around Asia and traveled to a lot of different countries. So I, I love doing that stuff. Right now, I was planned to be in Mexico. We would have been doing this from a hacienda in Mexico, except I, I tore my Achilles and just had surgery on it this past week. So, <laughs> but that was intended to be a scuba diving trip. So one of my interests, rock climbing. I love rock climbing. Uh, running, anything outside, anything where I can play, travel, see the world. And then the listeners, you know, you're raising money. How can they get a hold of you, right? To, To start investing with you. Sure. Yeah. If anybody wants to reach out, we can connect. And I'm also happy just to give you any any more insight into what I'm doing. Happy to answer whatever questions you got. Email's easy. It's just Levi, L-E-V-I dot Keen, K-E-E-N-E at gmail.com. And feel free to reach out anytime. Very good. Well, Levi, it's been a pleasure uh, getting to know you and and just having you on the show. So thanks for uh, making some time for us. Hey, uh, it was a lot of fun. Doug, I don't know you super well, but got to know you a little bit better tonight. Hopefully we'll get to connect in person at some point. Yeah, love to. That'd be great. Thanks for being on the show. We appreciate it very much. Awesome. Wow, that was a great interview with Levi Keen. Yeah, wasn't it, though? What an interesting young man as we uh, finished that interview in, in our conversation after talking with him, I, I said that uh, one of the great things about doing a podcast like this is that you meet so many interesting people. You walk past them in the grocery store, you you know, you know, might leave, live next door to them and wave at them as you pull out of the driveway in the morning, but you have no idea who these people are. And being able to talk to somebody and get into a little bit deeper into their lives and find some of those details has been really rewarding. And certainly Levi is a great example of getting to know someone who's interesting like that. 
Yeah, I was just impressed with how fast he moved up the chain at his work. I mean, he's a director, I believe, and after 12 years, I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah, he is an impressive young man. I loved his, his just his openness to new things. You know, that's the entrepreneurial spirit. He, he really just has this idea of things he likes to do and, and things he wants to experience, and he goes out and he does it. That's very cool. Yeah, but he doesn't just go out and do it. He researches it, and reads books, and really evaluates the trade space. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that's important. You've got to know what you're getting into. That's That would just be foolish to jump into something and, and not have any understanding of it. But you also are equally foolish, I think, if you, if you can't get past the analysis piece and you suffer from analysis paralysis, you know a whole lot of stuff. But if you can't apply it and you won't use it, then that's not going to get you anywhere. I always thought syndication meant me and you start a LLC and start raising money and evaluating deals and grabbing money from all our coworkers and friends and starting in a syndication. But, you know, this is his model is you go find an existing successful syndication, jump in as a passive investor, get to know the people, get to know the process, and then try to add value and then try to be mentored and then try to take a spot in the existing LLC. Right. Instead of trying to create it yourself. I mean, that, that to me, that doesn't sound so scary. And I just loved how he took that experience from an in, his engineering career and moved that over to being a syndicate. I mean, I I'm, I'm, can say with almost 100% certainty, as, certain, as much certainty as any man can, that he's going to be very successful in that world as well. You know, it's just right. it's the way he operates. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely that. right. And then starting a, a gym too. I mean, he's he's wide right. open, you know. I so I think just that willingness to look for the opportunity and and, and just analyze it and go. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's I think that's awesome. I love that that he's starting the gym. <laughs> so, uh, what did you think about his secrets for success? What stands out to you? Introspection you know, evaluates each day. I mean, that's, I kind of do it, but I don't do it probably enough. You know, so yeah. I like that. How about you? The other, the thing that, that stands out with all of these people, everybody who's successful, they have a, a, a desire for knowledge. They have this craving. They read a lot of books. They listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. He likes to read. He's got that thirst for knowledge. Uh, interesting great, guy. Man. Great guess. Man. Time. Yeah. He, he'll go far. We'll have to have him back someday. Doug, it's been great getting back in the saddle, but I think our time's up. So can you take us out of here? Yeah. Thanks everybody for listening in tonight. I hope you got a lot out of it. Uh, there is a, a fun idea, something that I've, I've said a lot when people, when people will, will do something and they're very successful. A phrase that I like to use is it's amazing what you can do when you don't know you can't. So uh, there's a, a quote here that I'll share with you on the way out. It's a, that is, success is most often achieved by those who don't know that failure is inevitable. So when you don't realize that uh, failure is going to happen, when you don't realize you can't do something, you realize you actually can do it. So go out there with a positive attitude to tackle whatever your dreams are, read some good books and, and learn from some experienced people and make it happen for yourself. And then call us and tell us your story. I look forward to hearing from you. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we find the secret ingredients for success. We all want to be successful in life. 
So let's break down the steps it takes to get there and learn from other people's journeys. We hope that through the stories you hear on our show, you will find success in your life.